With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, Islamist censorship, Boris Johnson, the Woke Washington Post, and trans athletes in women's sports. Cinemas across the UK have pulled a film allegedly due to its blasphemous content. Uh, Islamic protesters say that the Lady of Heaven uh, contains blasphemous scenes depicting the Prophet Muhammad in a disrespectful way, as well as protests in towns like Bradford and Sheffield. There's been a petition with over 100,000 signatures calling for the film to be banned. Tom, what have you made of this? I think this is really outrageous, and the lack of response is really outrageous. As you say, there's been these protests, quite menacing protests, you know, a couple mm. hundred people often at one time. It's quite clearly an intimidatory campaign. This isn't just about people talking about their hurt feelings necessarily. Um, and also it's had an effect, you know, Cineworld put out this statement saying because they cannot maintain the safety for their staff and customers that they've pulled this film across the country. Showcase, I think is another one, another chain, smaller chain has already pulled um, its screenings of this film. View, I think is hanging on. Um, and so what you've essentially got here is a group of hardline religious conservatives who have managed to mm. partially censor a film, get it pulled from cinemas across the country. And no one seems to care that much whatsoever. There has been deafening silence. I mean, there's been a couple of politicians who have said something about it. I mean, Sajid Javid has condemned it as cancel culture. But there's no sense in which there's going to be anything that follows on from this, especially because, you know, it was only last year that we saw that horror at Batley Grammar mm. in Yorkshire, where this that teacher was hounded out of his school. Again, the school was shut down for a number of days because he showed an image of the Prophet Muhammad in class, in a religious studies class on blasphemy. He's, as far as we can tell, we've not been back to his own family home since. We keep feeding this. Mm. No one seems to take it seriously. And we've essentially ushered in a system of mob rule where artistic expression is concerned. I'm sure we'll get into the, into the reasons as to why people don't seem to recognise this as such a serious problem. But that's the reality. We've Out of our own sort of cowardice, the terror of being... Um, condemned as Islamophobic or whatever, if you stand up to these very hardline individuals who represent no one but themselves, has allowed them to basically usher in actual religious bigotry, like a mm. backdoor blasphemy law. And the again, the silence on this, aside from a few news reports and a couple of people speaking out of it, tells you everything you need to know about how we ended up here, I think. Yeah, it seems as if the two responses or the two main responses are either silence or essentially capitulation. And, um, you know, we can show a clip now of uh, a manager, a cinema manager, giving in to the mob. At a local level, it wasn't our decision to show this film. It came from above. We totally agree with what you're saying. And we are not prepared at this cinema to show this film. Ella, what have you made of this? As, as Tom suggests, this is not the first time by any stretch of the imagination that, you know, essentially... Um, Islamic blasphemy rules um, have trumped free speech in what is supposed to be a 21st century secular liberal democracy. 
And the, the remarkable thing about that clip from that employee in Cineworld is that he's not giving the kind of uh, standard line about safety and the, mm -hmm. the kind of fobbing off thing that the um, the formal statement from Cineworld did. He, he literally says, we agree with you. Um, we didn't want to show this. Mm. And you want to say, well, hang on, which part did you agree with? Do you agree that it is deeply Islamophobic and offensive? In which case, have you got really passionate views about the showing of, you know, the alleged showing of Muhammad and Fatima? Because that's really what the issue um, is around. Or have you got particular views about the difference between Sunni and Shiite understandings of that particular part of Islamic history? I mean, it's just a complete nonsense, the idea that he would agree with them. And the tenor of of the protests are really interesting and worrying because on the one hand, they're very intimidating. You have mm. individuals who have, have clips been going around on Twitter saying, you know, directly threatening things. We have been born and brought up to defend this with our lives. If you carry on showing this film, there will be repercussions. You know, dead eye staring in the camera. You know, who, okay, you could say, who knows what that means? But as Tom says, in the context of Samuel Patty, of Charlie Hebdo, it's obvious that they're at least alluding to the threat of something like that, these protesters. At the same time, they're holding up signs that say things like, I have a right not to be offended mm. or, you know, you're in something, you know, like safe space terminology, yeah. the kind of stuff that you most typically find, you know, on university campuses, for example. So it's this, it's a real example of the way in which, you know, real extremists are using the language of offence culture and this yeah. kind of really um, soft, wet terminology that actually has more clout these days. It's probably the signs using that kind of um, um, "I have a right not to be offended" language that that won them this um, this this ban than the actual threats of potential violence or suggested violence. But you're right. I mean. The other thing is that there have been many petitions against films in particular um, recently. I remember, you know, in 2018, uh, an allergy awareness organisation tried to get Peter Rabbit banned um, <laughs> in Sony Pictures because he was pelted with berries and he was allergic to berries. And so, you know, there's and there was a huge petition about it. And most of the time, luckily, um, cinemas have held firm and said, you know, they might have said, oh, well, we don't want to upset someone, but they certainly don't pull the film. The speed with which, in particular, Sinewell pulled the film is remarkable. Um, because when you get down to it in a secular society, this debate about, you know, what a, a review on Five Pillars, a Muslim website called sectarian filth. Mm. And, uh, you know, for those of us who aren't Muslim or even don't believe in God or even moderate Muslims, that, that just doesn't compute. There's no, you know, this is a very small... <laughs> particularly sectarian um, kind of disgruntlement that should not play out in the public space of of cinema or any kind of arts entertainment industry. I mean, do Islamists, Tom, essentially just have a veto over public life now? Well, it seems like it when they're willing to exercise it because they know that time and time again, people are just going to cave in to this stuff. I mean, that's the thing about all of these instances, whether you want to go back to Salman Rushdie and the Fatwa, you mm -hmm. want to go to Charlie Hebdo. Um, you had the kind of immediate act of either threats of murder, murder, extreme censorship, um, hounding people out of public life, whatever it might be, which is shocking on its own terms. But at the same time, we know these people are hardline religious nutcases. What's almost more shocking is the lack of solidarity, is the mm. lack of courage, frankly, um, which has greeted this time and time again. This has been a chronic problem and we've just continued to feed it with our own cowardice. And people try and dress it up different ways. You know, I think that... Um, 
particular Cineworld manager was almost alluding to this idea that for the sake of multiculturalism, this film has to be censored. And yet it seems like in large part what a lot of these blokes were upset about, you know, the talk of it being sectarian or whatever, is because of the depictions of particular figures in Islamic history mm. from a Shia perspective and how obviously they find that deeply offensive. So you're kind of intervening in some respects in this kind of sectarian battle. I don't claim to know the full intricacies, but that doesn't seem to me to be... <laughs> It just at the end of the day, they're full of it. It's about cowardice. Yeah. Um, they're scared of these people. Um, and the reason that they've been given this power is because time and time again, people have capitulated to it. I think the the, the invocation of the language of the safe space or, again, the kind of particular accusation that it's racist and all this kind of stuff, which you've seen on a lot of the placards there, is very, very interesting. They're definitely trying to co-opt a lot of that language um, because they know a lot of people kind of secretly do, would agree with them, actually, on some level, even if they might completely go in with it. But if we're talking about racism, when we ask the question, why is there silence on this? Where if, if it was a bunch of kind of blue rinse churchgoers mm. upset about a film that depicted Jesus Christ in a particular way, they would be laughed out of the room. Yeah. That why was, is it? That was what Father Ted did in an episode, exactly, you know, down yeah. with this sort of thing. <laughs> Careful I mean, out and all yeah. that. <laughs> you know, that's the image that we have of those people. It's, yeah. almost, it's almost funny, you know. Mm. And yet in this situation, obviously there's the element of intimidation, which is very clear and very much there. But why do we almost not, hold these protesters to the same standards as anyone yeah. else in society. And in a sense, it's a racist double standard. Mm. Um, this is what they do, isn't it? Yeah. Of course they'll be upset about this. They're effectively not up in the minds of the people who are capitulating to this, of what it takes to be a citizen in a liberal secular society, whilst all the rest of us might have to put up with the fact that our beliefs or our creed or our gods or our imaginary friends or whatever it is might get defamed from time to time. Um, they're not up to it. Mm. They're not quite like us. That's what motives a double standard. So I, I think even though identity politics has infected this, the thing that really shines through is just the kind of racism of that politics because it, it's, again, created cover for this kind of thing. It's excused it whilst also expressing a deep prejudice towards Muslims in society in general who are not only tarred with the brush of these nutcases, yeah. they claim to speak on behalf of them and then by capitulating to them, you almost cede them that... Um, prominence that position um but also by hold, having this double standard you're basically saying they're not like us and that's disgusting so earlier this week boris johnson narrowly survived a vote of confidence in his premiership um, large numbers of tory mps are very angry over the party gate scandal that has dragged on for months over things like high taxes and also just the tories woeful performance in the polls i mean tom this has been quite a hectic week quite a mad week i mean is is this the beginning of the end for boris do you think it's hard not to see it that way just because of the fact that his authority has been so blown to pieces with his own parliamentary party that you know the tories were in trouble with the polls not really as much as you would expect actually considering <laughs> the amount of hot air you know they are trailing but it is midterm and all the rest of it but boris johnson standing certainly is, is dreadful yeah. you know he's, he's near a all-time low in relation to his personal approval ratings um his goodwill with the public has definitely been shredded over Partygate. And whilst we're all bored of that, and I think most of the public are bored of that, the damage has already been done, yeah. even if you know it's been ridden into the ground, if you like. Um, and then you've got the fact that, as of this week, 40% of his own parliamentary party don't have confidence in mm. him. Um, and the thing about these things is these rebellions tend to grow, you know, because more people, if they knew that so many of their colleagues would vote this way, they would join in. And so it's it's difficult to see a particular way back from this. I mean, he's defied political the sort of laws of political gravity before if you like yeah um he's bounced back in a lot of situations in which people said it was over it's just difficult to see that now 
Um, there's a lot that's regrettable about that, the kind of pretty transparent media campaign against him, which really reached its crescendo again over the around this confidence vote, as Alistair Stewart wrote about on, on Spike this week. Um, there's also the fact that it's quite clear that there's a lot of people who are sort of rubbing their hands with glee because they think, as Andrew Adonis lets slip this week, often falls to him to say the quiet part out loud <laughs> when it comes to sort of what the Remainers are thinking, that if you get rid of Boris, then, you, then later on you can get rid of Brexit. Yeah, um, That's clearly what their intention is. They want to kind of draw a curtain over this crazy period in British politics where ordinary people matter just that tiny bit more. All of that is true, but at the same time, Boris has kind of fucked it in yeah. relation to the public and in relation to his own party, and I'd be very surprised if he could crawl out of the hole that he's dug for himself here. Yeah, I mean, Ella, obviously, you know, even if we acknowledged Boris's many, many faults, there is also something slightly worrying about the opposition to Boris, particularly where it's coming from, not just from like Remainers like Andrew Adonis, but people like Jeremy Hunt, for instance, who's made no secret of his, you know, leadership ambitions. Most definitely. I mean, if you look at the, uh, the list of hopeful replacements, it's depressing. It's, mm. you know, Jeremy Hunt, who, okay, he got a, you know, Nadine Dory certainly shows what she thought about him um, <laughs> this week going for him on Twitter. Calling him duplicitous. duplicitous. But I mean, her, her raising of his, you know, track record in relation to his former positions in government are, you know, she's got him banged to rights. He is not a successful politician by any sense of any kind of public sentiment. He didn't do his job well. So just because he's this kind of slightly, um, uh, you know, slightly sort of backdoor ambitious kind of person who manages to slip in the right time doesn't necessarily mean he'd be a good prime minister. I mean, Liz Truss, um, Tom Tugendhat has suggested, I mean, Christ, you know, yeah. I really wouldn't want to be, um, I wouldn't want any of those people to be my prime minister. And I can say that at the same time as I don't, I'm not very happy with Boris Johnson at the moment, but I think it's really telling that the vast majority of the focus of why Boris has to go is actually now, even at this point, not that much to do with Partygate. It's really actually to do with Brexit. And um, even in these kind of very subtle forms where you have people, in, both political commentators and politicians themselves, coming out and saying things like, you know, this is a man that has presided over chaos. And actually what they're talking about is the fact that he, you know, secured Brexit and that during that and after that 2019 election. And below, if you scratch the surface, below everything is a desire to overturn what they see has been, you know, six years since 2016 of just horror and mess and, you know, terrible upset. And we just need to wipe the slate clean by putting in, you know, someone that Tobias Elwood supports, you know, classic yeah. huge remainer. Um, but it's also the case that if you, if you, you know, look at the, the other, um, side of the coin, which is that Boris Johnson might have a leg to stand on if, for example, we weren't currently in the middle of an insane cost of living crisis where, you know, this week, not many, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of halfway up the news agenda, but it's not, still not quite topping the news agenda. The fact that it's going to cost over a hundred pounds to fill up your car. Yeah. You know, the fact that there is still this question of, you know, people being, having to pick between heating and eating. And then what is Boris Johnson's great announcement to garner the courage of the country and get everyone back behind him 
that the Great Reset is going to involve allowing benefit people on benefits to own their own homes, as if that's top of anyone's list who is on benefits. So it's just, he does himself no favours. There's nothing about him anymore. He actually doesn't have either the um, pandemic or the vaccination programme or the or Brexit to lean on anymore. It's mm. too far in the past, or at least, you know, for some people it's not, but it should be too far in the past. So it's incredibly hard to defend him, despite the fact that he won the vote. I mean, Tom, it's, it's interesting to see um, how a lot of the Tory figures are more worried about losing um, votes in the so-called heartlands in the South. They're more worried about their performance there than they are in losing ground in the Red Wall, so mm-hmm. to speak. I mean, it's almost as if they want to turn the clock back on that period. They don't want to listen, have to listen to these oikish Red Wall voters. They want to go back to their comfort zone. No, I think, I think that's definitely a big part of it. Um, and I think there's a kind of sense in which, you know, particularly for a figure like Jeremy Hunt or any of the kind of, you know, sort of more wet Tory characters who have tried, who are competing for that kind of spot on the ballot paper and the leadership vote to come. Um, there's this kind of sense we have to go back and listen to our base, you know, because mm. they've been very upset by all of this um, stuff that we were going to do in terms of levelling up, them being left behind. I mean, all of these kind of leafy, wealthy Southern seats thing that they're going to become the new left behind areas. It's slightly <laughs> ridiculous, but it shows that yeah. even the Tory party is are slightly, un- large sections of it are very uncomfortable with what's happened, what their new base is and all the rest of it. And I, I completely agree with Ella. I think if there was something else that Boris Johnson could point to, then he would be in a better place um, with voters as well as with his party who, because the Tory party is so on the one hand transactional and just interested in power, but also kind of clueless and disorientated in recent years that, you know, as long as there was some kind of direction, they would kind of on, by on large kind of go along with it. But if you think about anything that gave him the sort of populist energy that he had beforehand, all of that's completely been blown to pieces now. I mean, if anything, on a lot of the big issues and ones that are directly affecting us now, he has sort of f- f- thrown his lot in with the sort of like metropolitan elite dogmas around green politics. The culture war, even though he's often done up as some big culture warrior, he's very sheepish on in general. He never has the ability to really capitalise on it, see it as a serious issue. So there's nothing else that you can point to, really, I think is the problem for him at the moment. I think on that thing about all these commentators saying, well, we get rid of Boris, we get rid of Brexit, we get rid of Boris, we get rid of populism. Um, On the one hand, it's just incredibly naive, I think, Mm. and ridiculous. Um, Because of the fact that whilst they might have kind of personalised in the figure of Boris, this is why they hate him so much. He's not that outrageous a character in many respects, but they hate him so much because they see him as like his avatar for everything that's gone wrong and their own kind of descent into semi-madness over recent years. Um, The idea that just because they've managed to take down or uh, the leader, the sort of one-time leader of this populist revolt is kind of self-destructed mm. because of his own terrible tendencies, <laughs> that all of those people are going to think, you know what, you were right. Yeah. We should just be ruled by Brussels or we should just be ruled by Tom Tugendhat or someone's kind of yeah. similarly managerial and slippery. It's ridiculous. Um, but at the same time, there is a danger that it does deal a significant blow. I think that the reason for optimism is because of the fact that all you've got to do is look to America, really, where, again, you have a blow against a, the defeat, rather, of the very flawed vehicle for populism <laughs> over there. Uh, a return of the kind of old regime, uh, the adults returning to the room, normalcy being mm. returned and all that kind of stuff. Um, a, a pretty explicit sense that we're going to put a lid on all of this now. Um, and then it just, everything continues to go mad. It yeah. pops up in all different places, not least because you have the regime kind of overreaching in all sorts of different places. You have new battlefronts in education or in culture or around discussions of tech really sort of livens up. You can't make this go away because of the fact that fundamentally this is about ordinary people 
wanting to be able to speak their minds, wanting to have genuine representation in public life, not wanting to be condescended to or controlled anymore. And that's not just going to evaporate because of the fact that Boris Johnson was eventually kind of tripped up by a combination of his own failures and a pretty concerted campaign against him. So I think there's always there's always reason for hope there because the fact that whilst the Boris Johnson era might be edging towards its close, although we mm. never know what might happen next, the populist era isn't going anywhere, I don't think. If you're looking to get into journalism and you're a fan of Spiked's articles, features or podcasts like this one, then you have to apply to Spiked's internship programme. We're looking for hardworking, enthusiastic people who want to help Spiked spread our pro-freedom, pro-democracy message. If successful, you'll join us for a six-month paid placement in our London offices. Spiked interns can expect to learn or develop a whole range of skills, from writing and copy editing to social media and audiovisual content creation. To find out more and to apply, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash interns. Applications close on Monday, the 20th of June, so don't delay. Go to spiked-online.com forward slash interns. So the Washington Post, one of America's most prestigious liberal newspapers, has gone into absolute meltdown. Political reporter David Weigel retweeted a sexist joke, which goes something along the lines of, every girl is bi, you've just got to figure out whether it's polar or sexual. And this was immediately latched onto by fellow reporter Felicia Somnes, um, who is around six days later still tweeting about this, funnily enough. Mm. So essentially the, the Washington Post newsroom has exploded over this. There's been lots of sort of public fighting. The executive editor has told everyone they've got to calm down. I mean... Right, we need to stop the podcast right here because there's been some breaking news. Since we recorded this episode, Felicia Somnes, the reporter at the heart of the row, has been fired from the Washington Post for misconduct that includes insubordination, maligning your co-workers online, and violating the Post's standards on workplace collegiality and inclusivity. Still, the discussion we had is just as relevant as ever. So enjoy. Ella, I mean, this is just classic kind of woke newsroom behaviour now, isn't it? It's not newsroom, it's classroom. It really mm. is so childish. I mean, the joke itself is, you know, childish. And the, uh, you know, this idea that women are either mad or, uh, you know, up for a shag. But like, whatever, it's, you know, it's funny, it's stupid. It's not meant to be a serious thing. It's meant to be a stupid a joke. a serious statement on women. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's not a statement of not political quite intent. Not commensurate to the level of outrage. <laughs> And that's what I mean. It, the, the the ridiculousness of the joke becomes heightened and ever more obvious the more um, Sonmez and others have poured <laughs> their outrage on top of it because you just think, and particularly I have to say, people, particularly with the question of bi, people have been joking about bi people for a very, you know, it's a touchy subject in the LGBTQ plus whatever community, but jokes about bi people have been around for a long time. So just the idea that this would ignite your moral outrage in this mm. kind of a way is very, very weird, almost as weird as, you know, thinking about why Weigel retweeted it in the first place, you know, <laughs> in this kind of in this culture, you know, it's all going to uh, cancel culture. It's all going to come down on your head. But the fact that it escalated to a point in which, you know, he was, um, his job was threatened. He was suspended. That You know, the Washington Post started collapsing in on itself. All mm. these staff were going for each other's throats to the point in which 
you know, talking about a classroom, the sort of teacher in the form of a senior member of staff had to step in and say, no, no, break it up, everyone, stop <laughs> fighting. It's just so ignoble. It's so embarrassing. But it it sort of says something really important about um, about the difference between, okay, I know that Twitter is a public space mm. and, you know, you are, you are putting out a public statement, whether you're retweeting or not. But the difference between understanding someone's personal enjoyment of a joke outside of the workplace and then suggesting that that would reflect their professional engagement with you, that because somebody laughed at a stupid bi joke about women, that they would then walk into the coffee area on a Monday morning and expect you to have a mental breakdown or get into bed with them. It's like, it's just, that's a totally ridiculous idea. And it's a real fracturing of this very adult concept, important concept of the difference between people's private lives, their professional lives, their, you know, the fact that people can have different personas and the freedom that's involved in that. Um, Never mind the fact that it's such an infringement on just, even though we're talking about Washington Post assholes, basically, that it's an infringement on, you know, workers' rights to suggest that because of what someone thinks about a joke or something that that would affect their um, ability to work and that you could withhold their ability to work for them on the basis of a joke that they retweeted. It's just such a horrible mess. And I've really put a perfect example of how toxic this kind of, <laughs> not just cancel culture, but but sort of attention seeking yeah. side of the cancel culture has become because Sonmez was only doing this to, to kind of depict what a great person she was, not because she was some kind of, she was yeah, by, not, by the joke, not because she's some kind of, maybe she isn't, not because she's some kind of warrior for buy rights or anything like that. I wish we could say that this was a one-off, mm. that they've all, they've just got a bit carried away. But this is becoming a regular occurrence now, especially in sort of journalistic establishments in the US, right? In the US, it's got it's really off the rails now. I mean, there's been a few kind of famous cases in recent years. Obviously, there was the uh, Barry Weiss's departure from the New York Times, kind of mm. brought in as a somewhat centre right, you know, person anti woke to kind of mix up the opinion desk and just become that became the sort of target for a kind of concerted campaign of internal sort of bitching and bullying um arguments over slack over things that she'd written or tweeted and all the rest of it to the point where she actually ended up resigning um i think a resignation letter sets that out quite well and as far as there is this somewhat generational internal battle within newsrooms between as she would put it older liberals and younger wokes and what's fascinating is that you have even these quite um these older kind of quite esteemed higher up journalists who just capitulate to this nonsense. I mean, that's one thing about this particular, this Washington Post story is it seems like everyone involved apart from with the exception, maybe of Son Mez herself knows this is ridiculous on yeah. some level. They have to kind of pretend that they found this joke really unacceptable and terrible, but he's apologized. So let's move on. Um, but at the same time, they still feel the need to give into it. Also at the New York times, you know, had when they published that piece from Tom, Tom Cotton, yeah. um, a Republican Senator, I believe, um, talking about bringing the National Guard in to quell the BLM protests and riots, essentially. Um, their, I believe it's their opinion editor had to leave over that because you again had this sort of staff revolt, despite the fact obviously publishing pieces from um, sitting senators and Congress people is obviously a key part of what you know, the newspaper of record would do. <laughs> um, again, there's been this rejection of it. It is, as Ella was saying, it's like, it's like the politics of the playground. It's running off and telling the teacher. I mean, you see yeah. these tweets from... Um, Son Mez, again, constantly just saying, why has, haven't my grievances been listened to? Mm. Even after the fact that Weigel has been, you know, suspended for a month. And then I think within this, I don't want to get too specific, but because some of the people involved are a little bit litigious, it seems like, but there is a, a clear thing as well, wherein whilst some people really have drunk the 
Kool-Aid of like offense culture and all that stuff. Um, this stuff is also a very useful weapon to just have out your own workplace grievances. Yeah. Mm. It seems like Son Mez in particular, because she had this previous kind of brush with um, the Washington Post higher-ups over her own tweets. Interesting uh, uh, issue over which David Weigel actually defended her when she um, tweeted about Kobe Bryant's previous allegations of rape made against him in the wake of his death. Um, this is something that's been a long-running axe to grind she has against them. Again, a lot of this stuff, it just it can just become a very convenient weapon because you can be can, you can claim to be incredibly traumatized, claim to be incredibly damaged, claim that this reflects the toxic culture of XYZ at XYZ yeah. institution, and you're taken seriously, even when you're being patently ridiculous, as mm. this particular journalist definitely was over the course of the past couple of days. Transgender cyclist Emily Bridges gave an interview to ITV earlier this week. Bridges essentially argued that the inclusion of trans women in women's sport was simply a matter of fairness and equality. Ella, do you think it's fair? No, it's very clearly not fair. Um, I mean, even the fact that Emily Bridges is taking part in studies um, in Loughborough University, I think it is, to you know, find out the extent to which lowering testosterone actually does make a difference because, you know, anyone who has knows more about science than me has already pointed to the fact that it's not just a case of uh, how fast you can run or how mm. fast you can cycle. It's about very, you know, things deep inside you, like your lung capacity, like your bone density, that, you know, uh, sex difference is not just something that's, you know, that we, we always talk about it as genitals. It's not just yeah. to do with your genitals. Or hormones, it, or, yeah, it runs through every yeah. part of your body. It runs through the, you, you know, your muscle definition, all these things. It's not something that can be overturned with, um, in completely with a, a year, two years of taking drugs. Um, so even, um, Emily's involvement in this investigation in Loughborough would suggest that he must be open to some form of uh, the understanding that there might be some kind of difference here. And we know that, you know, that, that these, there are these individuals who kind of rise to the fore who say, um, I'm different because I've fully transitioned or I'm taking all the right kind of medication. But that's, you know, be that as it may, there is this trend now to suggest that all trans women should be allowed to engage in women's sports. Mm. Um, that the that to have a rule otherwise or to have any kind of exception would be being transphobic. You have articles written in the wake of um, Emily's win that say that describing a trans woman body, a trans woman's body as a male body is transphobic. I mean, how do you talk about what is actually physically happening in this physical mm. thing, the world of sport, without being specific with words? And there was this really great tweet thread by someone um, from the Open University who was actually in relation to Stella Creasy's discussion about women's penises and things. But it was relating to this whole idea that you know, if you if you stop being able to use the right kind of language about things, whether yeah. it's you know, trans women, male bodies in a in a particular context, what you're saying to people is you're just mystifying the whole discussion, and you're saying this isn't for you to. It's very undemocratic. This isn't for you to talk about. And it really feels like people like Emily Bridges are being kind of petulant teenagers and saying, I should be allowed to do what you want and you don't understand it. And if you do understand it, if you question it, you're a bigot. Mm. So just stay out. It's like little lordships kind of thing. It's 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 not just undemocratic, it's tyrannical. Um, and rightly, lots of women, that is, you know, actual women, um, sports personalities have come out and 
uh, voiced their disgruntlement at this and said it's unfair. And I think if you even look at the picture of the podium in which there are two of that particular race, in which there are two this, trans... This is the race last weekend at Herne Hill. Yeah, there are two um, trans women who won first and second place. Emily Bridges is one of them. They're kissing and the woman on the third place panel is holding up her baby. Mm. And I think you can't, you know, you know, making sure that it's not crying for the professional picture. And I think that probably tells you all you need to know about the unfairness of this situation. I mean, so it, it, you brought up the sort of language question and male bodies and female. It, 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 they did feel for a while we could talk about trans women having male bodies. But as you say, you know, Stella Creasy talked about females, trans women are females. Um, Emily Bridges similarly referred to fellow female mm. athletes. I mean, basically every aspect of language is slipping away from us now, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's being completely eroded, which I think is because so much ground has been given on this particular question. And it, it's the Orwellian component of it, which is which is so chilling because you're, first of all, compelled to ignore the evidence of your own eyes. You mm. know, the fact that you have often, has to be said, quite sort of mediocre sportsmen who transition and suddenly become on the podium yeah this there is obviously a particular issue here um a lot of the stuff where it's talked about again there, there seems to be some sort of junk science has been cobbled together to suggest this isn't an issue even though it's quite clear that it's obviously clear that it is so time and time again you're just asked to ignore what's right at the end of your nose and i think that particularly there's something about gender ideology which um seems to think that essentially self-esteem should conquer everything else before it. How you see yourself matters more than any other material biological concern, even to the point where you would effectively destroy fairness in women's sport, which is what um, ushering in, again, kind of trans inclusion, as they would put it, um, would do, um, because that's more important than someone's feelings being hurt momentarily. That's essentially what we're talking about here. And, I th and it's something where, again, there's plenty of people who are talking about this now, rightly so, uh, because even though it's sport, it's maybe not as kind of serious as some of the kind of other areas of women's only spaces and whatever that we might previously talk about. It's a really good example because everything has to be thrown out. Everything that's core to sport, like notions of fairness, notions yeah. of fair play, all this kind of stuff. Um, because it's by separating the sexes that women can compete in sport at a high level anyway. You know, this is really important you know, mm. for the point of equality. But again, everything has to go because of hurt feelings, essentially. Uh, but for whatever reason, that's what this ideology demands of us. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.